Whoa! That was good. First Peter chapter five this morning. As we finish up our series in the book of First Peter. If you weren't blessed by that, your blesser's broken. That's all I gotta say. First Peter chapter five. We are going to look at Peter's final message from this tremendous letter that we've been looking at on Sunday mornings. And today, Peter wants to talk to us about characteristics of a healthy flock. Characteristics of a healthy flock. You see, many times in the Word of God, the whole shepherd-sheep motif is used to describe God or, or God's leaders that he calls to lead his people and then his people as sheep. In fact, one of the most beloved passages of Scripture in the Bible is the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. By the way, I hope that's true. I hope that the Lord God is your personal shepherd this morning. And as we look at these characteristics of a healthy flock, let's be reminded that Peter here is talking to God's people, his sheep. He's not talking to those that do not have a relationship with God. What he would say to those who don't have a relationship with God is, ask the Lord to be your shepherd. And let's start there. But God has a message for his people here, and he wants to give us that message uh, in this, the final words of Peter here about if God is looking for a healthy flock of sheep, what are the things that God would want to see in that flock? Well, the first thing that I see here is this. He wants us to learn to be followers. Learn to be followers. You'll notice in chapter 5, Peter refers to the elders of the church, the pastors of the church, and tells them, give a shepherd's care, verse 2, to God's flock among you. It's not the only time he mentions the flock. He also does it in verse 3, where he tells the leaders of the church, be examples to the flock, and don't lord it over those entrusted to you. So that's the context, you see, that Peter says, I'm talking to us as leaders, and I'm talking to God's people as God's flock. And he's saying throughout these first five verses, yes, he's directing his words to the leaders of the church, to the pastors and elders, but he's also saying to all of us, learn to be followers. Learn to be followers. Because in verse 5, he says, in the same way that leaders need to follow the chief shepherd, verse 4, you all who are younger be subject to the elders. Be a follower. In fact, I want to make this statement, and I want you to listen to what I'm saying this morning because it's something that God has really driven into my heart over the years. Followship, not fellowship, followship, learning to follow, precedes and includes spiritual leadership. In other words, first of all, one will never be a spiritual leader in God's eyes 
if one does not learn to follow. God will never call that person to spiritual leadership unless he sees in their hearts a heart that is willing to follow. First of all, to follow him, and then to follow his God-appointed authorities in their life. All of us, if we're going to be sheep, and, and we know that that's one of the reasons why God calls us sheep is because he says sheep have a, a tendency to wander. All we like sheep like to go astray. We like to go our own way. We like to be independent. We don't want to be part of the flock. We don't want to follow. But when you and I are following Christ, we couldn't be in a better place. And we need to learn to follow. And not only does fellowship precede spiritual leadership, fellowship includes spiritual leadership. In other words, you and I never get to the place, even if we get to a place in our life where God calls us to some position or role or responsibility of spiritual leadership where we stop following because we're the leader. Because all of us as leaders, as Peter points out in verse 4, must learn to follow our chief shepherd. And so no matter who we are, all of us better learn to follow. And he's saying that's one of the characteristics of a healthy flock is will we follow our shepherd? I mean, this was probably the major call or invitation that Jesus even gave to human beings while he was here on earth. What was it that he said to his disciples when he called them? He didn't say, believe in me. He said, follow me. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Later on in the Gospel of John, it's recorded that he had a conversation with Peter after he rose from the dead. You remember I referred to this several weeks ago where Jesus had told Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death. In, in typical Peter fashion, he points a finger over at John, you know, sort of his rival amongst the disciples and says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, Peter, if it's my will that I allow John to stay alive until I come back, what is that to you? And then the next two words he says to Peter is, follow me. You follow me. That's what it always was with Peter. That's what it always is with all of us, is God calls us to follow him. Jesus in John chapter 10, it's recorded, was talking to his followers at this time about being the good shepherd. And he says, I'm the good shepherd, and the, the sheep that I have will hear my voice, and they will follow me. They will not follow the voice of a stranger, because they don't know the voice of the stranger, but the one they know as their shepherd, they will follow. In other words, in Jesus' mind, knowing who he is, and having him as our shepherd should automatically lead to following him. If we truly know who he is, that he is the good shepherd, that he would never lead us anywhere that would not be the very best place for us, that as Psalm 23 says, as our shepherd, he will always lead us to calm waters and, and to, to green pastures. And, and even as we sang about today, his goodness and his mercy literally pursue us. They run after us. 
My cup is running over, the psalmist says. Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Some have a hard time following. God is looking for a healthy flock, a group of people just like he is here at the Oasis who are willing to follow him when we hear his voice and to follow those that he places in authority over us. That's why even it starts very early in the home where God tries to establish that mindset even amongst our children to learn to be followers and why he says to them, children, learn to obey your parents. You might not always agree with them. You might not always see things their way, but I'm trying to establish in you from a very early age you need to learn to follow. Why does God later on in the book of Romans tell all of us as Christians, regardless of who is leading our government, to be subject to our governmental authorities? Is it because we always agree with them and see things their way? No. It's learning to develop the heart of a follower and knowing that God is over all. And therefore, no matter what other authorities we place ourselves under, we do so willingly knowing that God got us and that God ultimately is watching over us. It's why he could say to the servants of his day, you be subject to your masters because ultimately I'll watch out for you. Again, it's not a matter of following by being forced to follow. That's not the way God sees it. God says, you willingly place yourself under, you lead. See, that's one of the interesting things in, in the Middle East, where Jesus was from, shepherds led their sheep differently than in other places of the world. Some places in the world, shepherds drive their sheep from behind. But in that area of the world, shepherds lead their sheep from in front. And that's why he calls us to follow, because he will not drive us. He will not force us to go the way he wants us to go, but he will always be out front wanting us to look up, to see where he's at, to hear his voice, and to follow. So the first characteristic of a healthy flock is learning to follow. Followship precedes and includes spiritual leadership. Second characteristic of a healthy flock is to embrace the role of being a servant leader. Embrace the role of being a servant leader. Notice in verse 5, in the same way you who are younger be subject to the elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now, the reason he uses or they use the word clothe here with the word humility, and we're going to talk more about humility in just a moment, is because that's very appropriate here. The word humility here literally means a servant's attire. As I said last week, being a servant is not doing acts of service like many Christians think, like I'm going to the church today and I'm going to serve for a couple hours. No, being a servant from God's perspective is literally waking up every day, putting on the attire of a servant, and wherever I go, whoever I run into, whatever situation I'm in, I look at it through the eyes of a servant. In fact, that is a big part of being humble, is being willing to serve. And we know from the Word of God that Jesus even said, the Son of Man 
The Ancient of Days, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ modeled putting on the servant's attire every day. In fact, I've shared this with you before. That's why even on the night he was betrayed, Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet as a great example of service. Do we have that kind of mindset? I've shared this with you before. That's why uh, Starbucks, when you go there and you see the baristas, they have the apron on. That actually is an ancient practice. It was, a, it was a servant's apron. It goes all the way back to Bible times where the servants were the ones who wore the apron that basically was a sign, I'm here to serve you. And what Peter is saying is one of the characteristics of a healthy flock is when the sheep aren't about themselves but about others first. What did Paul say to the Philippians by using Jesus as an example? He says, Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition and vanity, let each of us, with humility, be moved to treat others as more important than ourselves, learning to look out for the interests of others, not just our own interests. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. That's what Peter's saying here. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition and vanity, let each of us in humility look out for the interest of others and look at others as more important than ourselves. Then he goes on to say this. He says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was God did not consider that something to be held on to as far as his position, that it was all about him, but used his position, used his power for the benefit and profit of others. And that's why Paul goes on to say in that great passage of Scripture that therefore he emptied himself and became a servant and humbled himself even to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. That's the servant leader that Jesus was. And Jesus is looking for a group of sheep, if you will, who not only follow him, but who are learning to serve and learning to have the heart of a servant, who do not reduce service to just acts of service at certain times of the day or the week or the month of the year, but literally embody the heart of a servant every day of the year. That's a healthy flock. You see, Jesus said in his kingdom, the greatest in my kingdom is the one who's willing to be the servant of all. Because that's who Jesus was. Jesus didn't come to hold some kind of powerful earthly office and boss everybody around and tell everybody else what to do and he not do it. <laughs> No, he was out there serving every day, ministering. How could he encourage? How could he support? How could he help others? He always had those eyes looking out for others rather than himself. What could bring him to a place where he would 
willingly allow himself as God to be nailed to a cross. Well, it wasn't that the Roman Empire was so powerful or the Jewish authorities were so powerful that somehow Jesus couldn't stand up to them. He could have called a legion of angels. He could have breathed a breath and everybody there would have been vaporized. No, the thing that drove Jesus to the cross was his love for you and I. And even his love for those who crucified him, which is why he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Even to the very end of his death on the cross, it was his heart as a servant of God who was willing to come and do the will of his Father out of his love for us. That's what put him on that cross. That's what kept him on that cross until the payment had been made that satisfied the wrath of God so that you and I could have our sins forgiven for all time. The third characteristic of a healthy flock is this humility that he talks about, again, in verse 5. Because I want to I camp on that word for a moment, humility. Even Christians sometimes sort of misunderstand what that means. Some people think that being humble means I have a very low view of myself. But that's never been God's or the biblical definition of humility. Humility is not thinking less of myself than I should or thinking low of myself. It is simply thinking properly about myself, having a proper view of myself, especially in relationship to God. And I'll say it this way. Humility is really about learning to acknowledge our insufficiency and God's all-sufficiency. That's what humility is. You see, humility is understanding as a human being, you and I have limitations. I mean, we might not think we do. We might think we can handle everything and that, you know, we've got all this. And that's why sometimes throughout our life, something so big, so beyond us, has to be brought into our life so we realize we're just a human being. And we're very fragile, and we're finite, and we have limitations, you know. We just can't do everything we want to do all the time, nor can we figure everything out. We don't have all the answers. So humility is not thinking less of myself than I should, but it is coming to an understanding that I'm insufficient, but through my relationship with God, you and I can have a relationship with a God who is all-sufficient. Therefore, as God said, even while he was here on earth, yeah, with man things are impossible, but with God, what? All things are possible. Because God is all-sufficient. There's nothing you and I would ever need that would be beyond God. And beyond what God can handle and what God can help you and I to handle. But he goes on to say, notice, in the context of clothing ourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, put in there self-sufficient, but gives grace to the humble, those who recognize, I need God, because I can't do it all on my own. 
So therefore, I humble myself before God and I ask for his help. I ask for his assistance. I ask for his support. I cannot live independently of God, you see, because I don't know it all. I don't have it all. I can't deal with it all. Therefore, I am so glad that God is not only willing to die for my sin and give me eternal life through Jesus Christ my Lord, but that God is willing to walk with me every day and lead me as my shepherd and always be there to be my all-sufficient shepherd who will help me meet whatever challenges and trials and situations will come up in my life. So therefore, as one of his sheep, I never have to walk in fear. I never have to walk feeling that I lack or am deficient in any way, not because I have it within myself, but because you and I are connected to a God who is all-sufficient. And Paul learned that lesson when God would not take that thorn in his flesh away even after he prayed, but God did deliver a very powerful message to Paul when he said, but my grace is sufficient for you. You will be able to deal with that, Paul, because I will give you the grace to do it. And Paul said, fine. I'll accept my thorn and I'll accept your grace every day to deal with it. That's what humility is. Acknowledging our insufficiency and God's all-sufficiency. Are you there yet? Have you gotten to a place in your life where you realize some of the things that you've had to deal with were beyond you? As we say in our, you know, day and age, it's beyond my pay grade. I don't have the wherewithal or the wits or the wisdom or whatever to know how to handle this. I don't have the answer. And it's when we get into that point, it's like, good. From God's perspective, it's like, now you'll turn to me, which is where I've been all along, because I, I want you to understand you are eventually going to come to a place where something is beyond you, even if you come to that place where some doctor has to look you and I in the eye one day and say, you got a terminal disease and you've got six months to live. And as a pastor, I can tell you the great difference in being with somebody who has that news delivered to them, who knows God and who's connected to God, they're all-sufficient shepherd and someone who's not. Because even then, that's way beyond what you and I can handle on our own. Where do we turn if we don't have God? Who do you turn to? which can I say is one of the reasons why today there is and there ever always will be an increase in suicide, in addiction to drugs and alcohol, why people even, and this is going to lead to the next point, why we have such a lot of times heart conditions and high blood pressure and ulcers and gastrointestinal problems because we try as human beings to deal with things on our own that we have no business dealing with because it's beyond us. Which leads me to the next 
point of a characteristic of a healthy flock. And that is, God says, place one's life with all of its cares upon the Lord. Notice verse 6 and 7. And God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourselves under his mighty hand by casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. By the way, this word casting, I don't want to get too technical here, but this word casting in the original Greek language is in the aorist tense, which means this. It is saying to us that even as a Christian, as a sheep in God's flock, I am to learn not to take every little individual care or concern that comes up to my, in my life to God all the time. I mean, not, not that God wouldn't help you with that, but the point here is that God wants his sheep to get to a point where instead of taking every individual care when it comes up to him and casting it on him, that I literally once and for all, that's what the aorist tense means, that once for all, I just as a Christian place my entire life with all of its cares over on him and say, God, you've got this from now on. I'm not going to spend one more minute, one more day fretting and worrying and, and anxious and concerned about things that are beyond me and beyond my control. I'm finally going to get to a point, God, where all these things that I want to be in my control but aren't, I'm going to finally place my life with all of its cares, all of its concerns, all the things that are beyond me. I'm finally going to turn them all over to you. That's what it means to cast your care upon him. And why does God want us to do that? Because God's got the shoulders to handle it. And God knows that you and I as human beings do not have the shoulders big enough to handle life. That's again why we have high blood pressure and ulcers and all these gastrointestinal problems and physical problems and why we have addiction to drugs and alcohol and suicides and stuff because people today are trying to handle their cares and carry them on their back and God never intended for human beings to be able to lift those every day and carry them. And what happens to a human being when we do it over an extended period of time? It literally breaks us down and destroys us. All along, God is saying, if you would just humble yourself and know how much I love you and know how big my shoulders are and know that you can just cast all your care upon me, whatever it is, however big, however small, because, notice what it says, he cares for you. Personal. Did you get that? You, individually, are an object of God's personal attention, concern, and care every day. You might not even believe in God. <laughs> you might be here today and you might be listening to this message at some point. You might be an atheist or an agnostic, and yet God still cares about you and gives you his personal attention. Otherwise, you'd be dead. Because whether you believe it or not or acknowledge it or not, he's the one that keeps your heart beating and keeps the air in your lungs and keeps all of that going. 
How much more then should you and I who are his sheep, who at least have come to some kind of understanding of his love for us through the death of his son on the cross, how much more should you and I be willing to cast our care? Because we do know he does care for me and he cares for you too. He cares for all of us so deeply. In fact, I love what Peter writes in verse 10. He says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Notice this, will himself, in other words, God doesn't send an angel to do it. God doesn't get somebody else to do it. God says, I'm going to personally minister to you when you're hurting, when you're suffering hardship and affliction and difficulty and pain and all these different things that you're going through. I will personally, as the God of the universe, minister to you. What an amazing God. He not only keeps the universe going, he personally has the time, the energy, and, and even the love for us that we are his personal objects of ministry every day. And what does Peter say that he will do for us? Four things. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. I'm just going to go through these quickly because I'm running out of time this morning. The word restore can mean heal. It was a word that was used in biblical times to mend a broken bone, to set a broken bone. You could even think about when you go to a chiropractor and they sort of reset you type of thing. So it's this idea of healing. It's this beautiful picture that, you know, we can come to God totally broken. We don't have to come to God all fixed up because we can't fix ourselves anyway. Only God can. And that God is the one who can take our, us and all of our brokenness and he can restore us. He can mend us. He can heal us. He can put us back together. Yes, maybe all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but God could. You may be broken here today, but God can restore you like no one else can. Secondly, he can confirm you. It means that he will wrap his arms of love around you and get you to stop shaking and stop being so unstable, uh, unstable and, and, and sort of get you to calm down and me to calm down and, and just be settled for a moment. Because so often we can either in anger or whatever get so agitated or, or in fear get so, you know, uh, upset and whatnot. And God's got to come in and just sort of got to firm us up and settle us down and stabilize us. So he heals us, he settles us down, and then he strengthens us. He literally pours his almighty strength and power into us because that's what we need. Because when we're weak, we can't handle life. We can't navigate life. We can't get through life. Which is why mankind looks outside of himself for all these other coping mechanisms other than God to try to get by. But God can make us strong so that we can go through it rather than try to avoid it or go around it or deny that it's even there. And then finally, he establishes us. That literally means he builds this solid foundation underneath of us that will never give out, that will never crumble, that we can jump on, we can stomp on, whatever, and we know that the foundation underneath our feet is sure and stable because God put it there, which is why Jesus said he likened that if those who hear his sayings and do them, they'll be like the one that builds their house on the solid rock. 
The rains still come. The winds still beat against the house. But the house stands because it's got a solid foundation because God put us on that solid foundation. What a God. That's how much he cares for us, which is why he calls upon his flock of sheep. Cast all your care upon me. Stop trying to carry around what I never intended for you to carry and what you as a human being can't carry or else you will start to break under the weight of what you're trying to carry on your own. The next, maintain vigilance and stand one's ground against our spiritual enemy. Maintain vigilance and stand one's ground. You know, sheep had to realize there were wolves out there. There are enemies. And we better huddle together with our shepherd and huddle together with each other because when we go out there on our own, guess what? We put ourselves in danger because our number one adversary, the devil, notice what he says. Verse 8, be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl looking for someone to devour, literally someone to swallow up. That's a, that's a picture, isn't it? Just, just swallow us up, consume us. That's what he wants to do. But notice, Peter says, resist him, strong in your faith. Listen, God wouldn't tell his sheep to resist the devil if it wasn't possible for us to resist him. Now, obviously, we can't resist him on our own, but we can in the Lord's power and strength that he gives us as we put on the whole armor of God and say, no, devil, you're not getting this anymore of me. I'm done. You can't have me. Now, notice. We are never commanded in Scripture to attack the devil because we are no match for the devil in our mortal state. All he says is when you are attacked by the devil, just stand your ground. Don't retreat. Don't run. Don't give up any more ground to the devil. Just stand your ground until his attack is done and then keep moving forward. Resist him. Resist him. Strong in your faith. That's what God wants to see his healthy flocks do. When the devil attacks, don't give him any more of your life. Don't give him that part of your life anymore. Say no. I can say no. To, Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Realize we have a spiritual enemy though. Some Christians almost live every day as if you know, the devil doesn't even exist. And not that the devil is, is the answer to all of our ills and woes and problems and all of that, but we do have to understand the reality of spiritual warfare and the reality that he is out there and he does try to take us down. And we need to be alert and vigilant to that as God's sheep. Realizing all the time, though, that you and I with the Lord have the strength to be able to Resist, And then finally this morning, the final characteristic of a healthy flock, be confident that God is enough. Be confident as his sheep that God is enough. In fact, I direct your attention back to those four words in verse 9, strong in your faith. That means being confident in God is really what that means. Have strong confidence, not in ourselves, but in God as our shepherd, as our Savior, as our Creator, as our Lord. 
Are we confident in God? And here's why we should be confident in God. Three things Peter says about God in relationship to him. Go back up to verse 6. God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourself under, notice these next three words, his mighty hand. That is an Old Testament phrase that Peter pulls out and uses here. God's mighty hand was an illustration in the Old Testament of God's active presence and power. Remember, it was his hand that parted the Red Sea. And Peter's saying, if our God can part the Red Sea for his own people to go over and then to destroy Pharaoh and his army, then God can lift you and I up when we need to be lifted up. That's God's mighty hand. It was God's mighty hand that took down the city of Jericho. And even as we were singing that song, Surrounded, and Nicole was sharing that passage of Scripture from 2 Chronicles, I was also thinking of this, not only the the story of King Jehoshaphat, but the fact that they just walked around that city as God's people just worshiping and focusing on the Lord. And it was God who, in his mighty hand, brought those walls down. His mighty hand. It was God's mighty hand that fell the giant Goliath. I mean, yeah, David took out his stone and put it in his little sling as a shepherd, but it was the power of God behind that stone that caused the giant to fall. And Peter is saying to us, be confident that God is enough. He has a mighty hand. In fact, he's got the mightiest hand. He's got an almighty hand, and there is no force, nothing that can stand against the hand of God. And if you're in God's hand today, and if God's hand is lifting you up, then there's nothing that can stop you, my friends. You are an unstoppable force until God calls you and I home. Then he calls God, in verse 10, the God of all grace. I love that description of God. The God of not just some grace, the God of all grace. And we know that grace is simply a way of saying God's supernatural enablement and empowerment that he pours upon his people, which is why Paul could say, my grace, or why God could say to Paul, my grace will be sufficient for you. Why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, it is by the grace of God I am what I am. Because Paul relied on God's supernatural enablement and empowerment to lift him up and to help him navigate day after day. And because he's the God of all grace, however much grace we need, God's got it. However high your mountain is, God's grace can help you to rise above it. However deep the waters are that you're going through right now, God's got the grace to be able to take you down and get you all the way through it. He's the God of all grace. He never runs out of grace. And I love what the Bible says even concerning our sin. Where sin abounds, what does it say? God's grace superabounds. It doesn't matter how much sin you and I have done or anybody else has done. When we come to God through the mercy and forgiveness of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God's grace wipes it all clean. That's, that's grace. And then he says this, verse 11, to him God belongs the power forever. Amen. He's basically saying, you realize God's got all the power. He's the almighty God. All power comes from God. Any power that men have, it's only because God granted them that power. We have no power apart from God. 
And it's his power that created the universe. It's his power that sustains the universe. It's his power that will keep us and take us all the way through eternity. He has all the power. So Peter is saying to you and I as a sheep, why don't we start walking with our shepherd, the one who's all-powerful, the God of all grace, the one who has a mighty hand, He's simply trying to reinforce to the sheep of God, God's got us. He's got our situation. He's enough. God is enough for us. I don't know if you've ever been to this place in your life yet, but I believe that every human being will one day get there before we die if we live a fairly long life. And that is where you come to a place in your life where you realize that God is really all you have. I mean, you look around, you don't really have much else but God. And that could be scary, obviously. And yet there's something remarkable that happens at that moment. In that moment, when you realize that God is all you have, you also realize something really Hallelujah. And that is that God is all you need. It's almost like liberating. Like in a sense, it's almost like I got nothing, but I got everything at the same time because I've got God. I don't need anything or anyone else because it will be his mighty hand. It will be him, the God of all grace. It will be him who has all the power He's got this. He's got me. He's enough. I just need to be smart enough as one of his sheep to just keep following him. I'm going to ask that except for our worship team and unless you have an emergency that you would stay seated at this moment right now and no one move in this auditorium. Just the worship team, and if you have an emergency and you need to move, other than that, I'm just asking for you to just stay right where you're at for just a moment, because we're not done yet. Because so often you get to this point in the service and, and Christians start to check out. I see it. I don't want you to check out yet. Because I believe that God led me to this particular passage on this particular day because God wanted to personally, himself, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish some of you here today through this message. And I don't know all that's going on right now in your life. Even if I've been your pastor now for nine years, I, I don't know everything that's going on. I don't even know everything that's running through your head, and I don't want to, really. <laughs> Any more than you want, well, would I know what's running through my head all the time? But I know this. I know that God is our answer. So I want to ask right now, would you just bow your heads and let's just be in an attitude of prayer here right now with just us and God. And I, I want to take this moment before we praise the Lord today and we fight our battles with worship to just take some time to be with God, to let God minister. 
to let God work. And also, if you would allow me to give me the privilege as your pastor, and maybe even if I'm not your pastor, to pray for you and to pray over you today. So here's what, here's what I'd like to ask. No one else is looking around. I want to ask this question today. If God has in some way spoken to you through his word today, through this passage in 1 Peter 5, and you have come to a place in your life where you realize, I need to make a choice or a decision whether it's to follow the Lord more closely, to cast all your care upon Him, to have the faith that God is enough, whatever that looks like. That you would be willing at this point to acknowledge that. And here, here's, and here's why I'm asking that you would allow me to pray for you, because if you're in a position where the Lord has spoken to you in his word today or through his word and through our worship time, and you're getting ready to make some kind of decision in your life, some kind of choice in your life for God, then again, the enemy is not just going to sit back and let that go. Your enemy, the devil, is going to do everything he can to distract, to, to discourage to derail whatever decision you're going to make here in these next few moments with God. And so I want you to know that I am going to celebrate with you and, and, and I'm going to, to rejoice with you that God has spoken and God is moving in your life. But I also want all of us to acknowledge the reality too that whatever movement you begin to make you also need to resist the one who's going to come at you and come after you. Because he's not going to just let you move towards God or, or make some kind of movement spiritually in your life without being right there to try to derail it. So if, if there's some here today, you would say, Pastor Jeff, God has spoken to me this morning through our time of worship and through the word today. And I just want to raise my hand to acknowledge that and, and ask you to be praying for me. Would you do that right now all over the auditorium? Anyone at all? Thank you. Many, many, many hands. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Now's the time. You may put your hands down. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that this is just not another Sunday where we come and put in our time, go through our ritual, check a box to say we went to church today. That at the Oasis, we strive every Sunday and every Wednesday to make sure that we have an encounter with you, that we engage with the living God so that, God, when we come 
to this place, we always want to leave a little bit differently than when we came in. And God, you saw every hand that was raised here today. And you look into every heart that is here today, God. And you yourself want to minister personally to every person who's here. You want to come in and and settle in right alongside of all of us and meet with us in a way that only you can, God. And you want to restore us, heal that brokenness in our life. You want to settle us down, stop us from shaking. You want to strengthen us, God, and then you want to put us on a solid foundation. God, I pray that whatever movement we make towards you, that, God, we will be able to sustain it because it won't be us. It will be us relying upon the God of all grace to give us your grace every day to continue to walk the road that you're calling us to walk as your sheep. And whatever resistance we get from our spiritual enemy or anything or anyone else, God, we know we have been confidently reminded today that we can resist because the one who lives within us, the Holy Spirit of God, is greater than all. And we don't have to give in. And we don't have to give up. And we don't have to retreat. We can keep on walking with our shepherd. Lord, would you, as only you can, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish your people today. Give us the characteristics, God, of a healthy flock of sheep. A sheep who hear your voice and will simply follow you, our good shepherd, wherever you lead us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We fight our battles with the word and with prayer. And as Nicole pointed out this morning, we also fight our battles with worship. I love that in 2 Chronicles 20, where it says, as soon as they started to shout and worship, God brought their enemies down. I don't know what enemies you're dealing with. I don't know what situations you're dealing with, but I know this. God responds to his people when we pray, when we seek his face, when we praise and worship him. So let's lift up our heart of praise today and worship, and let's fight our battles by worshiping the Lord today and lifting up our voices to him.